from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good evening and welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at FRC. And it is my pleasure to be with you today here on Washington Watch as we get ready, running into the week right before Christmas. I know that you are all hustling and bustling to make your final preparations, but there's a lot going on in the nation's capital that you still need to be aware of. Unfortunately, uh, they just won't leave us alone. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Before we get to that, I want to make sure you know about a great opportunity to support the work of Washington Watch and the Family Research Council, thanks to a special year-end challenge match by Friends of FRC. Your gift will have double the impact if you give between now and December 31st. To do so, call 800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com. Again, the number is 800-225-4008 or TonyPerkins.com. Today on the program, lots of news. The latest release from the Twitter files reveals years' worth of dialogue between the FBI and Twitter discussing what should and should not be allowed on the platform. Should the FBI be having these conversations? What does this tell us about the FBI then and now? We'll talk about it today. Also, President Trump hosted a big party at his home to celebrate the passage of the disrespect for marriage law, where he told attendees, quote, we are fighting for the gay community and we are fighting and fighting hard, end quote. How should social conservatives react? What kind of impact will this have, if any, on his aspirations for 2024? Tony will stop by to join me for that conversation today. Also, Washington, D.C. continues to wait for the infamous omnibus bill which could be as much as 4,000 pages and is expected to pass by Thursday. Will anyone actually read it before it's passed? Can the Republicans stop it? Should they? We'll talk about all of that coming up. But our headline today, Title 42, the immigration policy set during the Trump administration in response to the COVID-19 pandemic will expire in two days, igniting new concerns over the chaos at our southern border. Now, fiscal year 2022 saw more than 2.3 million migrant encounters at the southern border, and with the 2023 numbers on pace to exceed that total already. Once Title 42 is lifted, an even greater surge of migrants is expected. In response, many border cities have already declared a state of emergency. How should Congress respond to this? Joining me to discuss it is U.S. Representative Greg Stubbe. He served on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He represents the 17th Congressional District of Florida. Congressman Stubbe, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to see you. Now, the Biden administration is insisting that uh, Title 42 will not create an insecure southern border. What's your reaction to that? Well, my first reaction is we already have an insecure southern border. Uh, Since Joe Biden's taken office, they've had almost 5 million illegal immigrants. Uh, Just last month, there was over 220,000 illegal immigrants, which is more than one of the counties in my district to the entire population of that county. Uh, That's how many people we have coming in every single month. It's gotten worse as uh, the rumors of Title 42 lifting has come about, and then it will be even more. 
Um, but that's exactly what this administration has planned is open borders. They want these individuals to come into our country. Otherwise, they would have shut it down. States have tried to take action, like put containers and all sorts of things in the gaps in the wall. And the Biden administration has sued them uh, to stop Arizona and some of these other states from stopping the influx of illegal immigrants into our country. The White House has come up with a new talking point on this issue. White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre said that it's those who believe the border is insecure are actually causing the border issue and helping the smugglers. Let's play clip six, and I want you to respond to this. We know smugglers uh, will try to spread misinformation to take advantage of these vulnerable uh, migrants. But I want to be very clear here. Uh, the fact is that the removal of Title 42 does not mean the border is open. Uh, anyone who suggests otherwise is simply doing the work of these smugglers who, again, are spreading misinformation and which are which is very dangerous. Representative Stubbe, uh, what's your response to the suggestion that you, as a critic of this policy, are the one who is spreading disinformation and, in fact, helping smugglers? Yeah, from the spokesperson of disinformation, straight from Disinformation Center right there in the White House, where lie after lie to the American people. Uh, just look at the numbers, 220-something thousand last month. It was 200-plus thousand the month before that. Uh, I think four million plus that have been encountered and apprehended, and then another 800 or 900,000 uh, that we know, that DHS knows are known gotaways. So five million illegal immigrants have come in into our country, 98 of which are on the known terrorist watch list, and they're going to say that it's misinformation, that people like myself speak facts and speak truth over them, that the border is wide open. Congressman Stubbe, one of the challenges here seems to be disagreement over the seriousness of this issue. Now, you just laid out some facts there. But over the weekend, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown on Meet the Press suggested that this is really just kind of a far right issue. Let's play clip one. I don't I don't hear a lot about immigration from voters except people on the far right that that always want to gain political um, advantage by talking about it. Well, in addition to that, I'm going to play one more clip for you. This is New York City Mayor Eric Adams, also a Democrat. He had a different tone on this issue. Let's play clip two. This is a national problem. El Paso shouldn't be going through this. Chicago shouldn't be going through this. Washington, Houston, cities should not be carrying the weight of a national problem. This is unfair to all of our cities to have to go through this without any help from the national government and the state government. Congressman Stubbe, why is it that people seem to uh, view this issue so differently and the seriousness of it? Well, for so long, Democrats, especially in Washington, have got away with lying to the American people, and the mainstream media just repeats the talking points, and Americans believe them. But thankfully, over the last couple of years, the veil has been pulled back on the dishonesty of this White House and Democrats in Washington, and the American people are smart enough to know that 5 million illegals have come into this country. They're seeing them in communities all across the country. They're seeing them in Florida. They're certainly seeing them in border states like Texas. They're seeing the cost 
of our budgets that are spending money on the cost of illegal immigration into our country from Medicaid, from emergency care, from all the food stamps, tan up all of that on the cost of our nation. Americans are smart enough to see when they turn on Fox News and see the actual drone footage of thousands of illegals lined up at the border. And then they turn to CNN and MSNBC that's saying, oh, no, there's not a border crisis, which actually some of them are even now saying, yes, if Title 42 is lifted, it's going to be a border crisis. So they they have lied to the American people for so long. They think that most of America is just going to believe them. But America is smarter than that. And they're seeing this footage every day on conservative outlets. And they know that this is going to be a problem that's affecting the safety and security of the American people. Well, certainly New York City Mayor Eric Adams is no uh, far right wing MAGA Republican extremist. And so there does seem to be, at least in some quarters, a bipartisan agreement that this is a real problem. Now, Congressman Stubbe, I think we're breaking some news here. Earlier today, uh, there were 19 conservative states that filed a, an emergency injunction request with the Supreme Court. And I believe I've been told in my ear that the Supreme Court has granted that. Now, are you aware of that? Any reaction to that potential development here? Uh, no, I haven't been made aware of that, but that's great. Hopefully the court will get involved in this. Uh, that's really, now that we have the House, we can be a backstop from a financial perspective through the appropriations process. But we realize that if we pass a bill in the House, the Democratic Senate's likely not going to, to pass it. But that crux that we have is the appropriations process in the House and you have even Republicans in the Senate working with Democrats to undermine that by trying to pass this omnibus. So hopefully the U.S. Supreme Court can help us uh, breathe some sanity and legality into this. What is happening on our border every single day is in direct contradiction to the laws that Congress has passed. And hopefully the United States Supreme Court will get in and stop them. Well, it seems that they have intervened for now. We will, of course, uh, continue to track this developing story and provide more information as we have it. But Congressman Stubbe, Title 42, is, it's part of the Public Health Services Act of 1944, and it really is about controlling the spread of communicable diseases. Now, there, certainly uh, during COVID, th that was relevant to our border policy. But long term, that doesn't seem to be the right way to be dealing with our immigration policy. And right now, people see seem to be dependent upon this communicable diseases statute to manage our immigration policy. What's the best approach long term, if not this? Well, the best approach is to pass a huge immigration reform bill, which we will pass in the Republican majority in the House, but we're not going to hold our breath that the Democratic Senate's going to pass it. Shutting down the border, uh, build, finishing building the wall from the safety and security of the American people, ending chain migration. There's a whole list of things uh, that I have worked on, that the Judiciary Committee has worked on, that uh, in a Republican House we will pass. That's the answer to a lot of this. Uh, immigrants from all over the world. I mean, we've captured people. 98 terrorists, people from Syria, Iran, Lebanon, and other uh, Middle Eastern countries from all over the world have been coming in because they know the border is broken and wide open, and this administration will do nothing to stop the influx of immigration, illegal immigration into our country. So Congress has to act. It'll, we will act in a majority House, but unfortunately, we don't have a Republican Senate that's going to join us with that. But that's the real answer. We have to shut the border down. We have to put rules in place. And frankly, if you just enforce the law that is passed right now, all of these 5 million illegal immigrants would have never been 
been able to get into our country. And then once their amnesty claims would have been found uh, not valid, they would have been deported back to their home countries or they would have been in Mexico or their home country when they filed their amnesty claims. And we wouldn't be dealing with what we're dealing with if this administration just simply followed the current law. Now, so much of what you're saying there seems to be common sense to a lot of people who are, are following the developments and seeing what's happening at the border, which really in many ways is just a, a human rights crisis because real people are dealing with really bad situations as a result in many cases of our immigration policy. But why does the other side not see this as common sense? What is the nature of their opposition to the proposals that you've just suggested there? Their opposition, of course, is 100 percent political. Look at their very first bill they filed, this this Congress, H.R. 1 and S. 1, would allow any illegal immigrant that is a resident in our country that is just here, regardless of their immigration status, regardless of their citizenship of our country, to vote. This is 100 percent political. If Joe Biden cared about the safety and security of the American people, if he cared about the number one leading cause of death isn't COVID, but it's fentanyl for those between the age of 18 and 45, and we know all that's coming through the southern border, if they really cared about Americans, they would shut down the border order and not allow the influx of illegal immigration to our country. But this is 100 percent political. They want to let as many people in as possible, give them the ability to vote in all of our states because they know that the majority of these people will vote Democrat. That is their plan. And that's why they don't care about this influx. Congressman to be very quickly, one final question. The last round of Twitter files dropped last night. The primary focus was the influence of the FBI on Twitter in about 30 seconds. A quick reaction to that. Yeah, Judiciary Committee in the House is obviously going to investigate that. Thankfully, we now have evidence and facts to be able to bring in these individuals and depose them, and we're looking forward to doing that. Congressman Greg Stubbe, thank you so much for your time and your vigilance, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you. And, you know, the, the issue there about whether people are coming across the border to vote for Democrats, that trend is actually changing within the Hispanic community, and one can't help but wonder if that political motivation, if that is in fact what's happening on the left, is going to backfire. But coming up next, former President Trump held an event with the log cabin Republicans to celebrate the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. We're going to talk about what that means for his campaign when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. 
The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose— Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Tony is just about to join us. Last Thursday, former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate hosted the Log Cabin Republicans' Spirit of Lincoln Gala, the premier annual event held by the conservative LGBTQ group. According to reports, the former president said, quote, we are fighting for the gay community and we are fighting and fighting hard, end quote. Now, though the gala had been scheduled for months, coming as it did the same week that President Biden signed the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, had the event serve as a de facto celebration for the redefinition of marriage. How should Christians react to this? Marriage as an institution between one man and one woman is a tenet of the Republican Party platform, which Trump embraced as both a candidate in 2016 and as the incumbent in 2020. With Trump returning as a presidential candidate in 2024 and the Disrespect for Marriage Act in place, could we see an attempt to change the party's platform? Joining me now to discuss it all is the host of Washington Watch, Tony Perkins. Tony, thanks for making some time for us. Joseph, good to be with you. Thanks so much for uh, filling in for me. I'm on the road traveling, but uh, I, I did want to join you on this story. I think it's an important story. It's not the first time, actually, that we've seen the log cabins have an event there in Mar-a-Lago. Um, but the timing of this, as you pointed out, this has been planned but coming on the heels of the Disrespect for Marriage Act, this is uh, significant. I think we need to pay attention to this because this is, as you pointed out, not only a position of the Republican Party in terms of their platform, it's been there, but it's for Christians, it's biblical. And, and the court can't change it. The Congress can't change it. And, and we have to be very clear that we see marriage as an institution created by God, and human sexuality is an issue that God speaks to because he created man. Now, I don't care what the cultural winds, which way they blow, 
we have to stand firm on that word. Now, Tony, I have no doubt that generations, centuries from now, uh, we will come to our senses on the marriage issue. I don't believe that there's a, a time 500 years from now where we realize men and women are functionally no different than the family can be any assemblage of, of individuals that we want as long as they like each other. But politically speaking, this feels like an issue that is settled in the short term. The Supreme Court made their decision on Obergefell. Now Congress has acted. To what degree should Christians and social conservatives Think about the the position that candidates have on an issue like this that may not be changing in the next 5, 10, 20 years. Look, I, I think we've got to be very clear, and we have been, and the party platform is actually clear on this because I wrote a large portion of it. I was involved in that process as a member of the platform committee. We love all people, and, and all Americans have rights that need to be protected, but we cannot affirm all choices equally. And the social science makes very clear that children benefit from a mom and a dad and society benefits from children who are well um, acclimated to society, brought up in the home. And we also know from studies that have been done at the Family Research Council and elsewhere that when faith is interjected into the midst, when children are growing up in a home with a faith foundation, with a mom and a dad who are married, they do much better than their peers from situations that are not the same. And so while there are exceptions, what we have to work toward is what is best for society as a whole. And disassembling marriage, redefining it, um, failing to acknowledge that God created male and female, that is not moving our society in a way that is beneficial to all. Now, and, and look, I, I have not spoken to uh, to former President Trump about this, but I'll be very clear. This is not the type of stuff that we can be promoting and expect to have what, uh, Joseph, you and I know very well as sage guns, a spiritually active governance-engaged conservatives who were central to President Trump's success in 2016. They are motivated not by personality, not by party politics. Their allegiance is, isn't to a party but rather it's to policies that are in alignment with biblical truth and biblical principles. You alluded to it. They were very supportive of the president when he wrapped himself in the party platform in 2016. And in 2020, you know, he had a track record. You know, his policies were very supportive of religious freedom, of traditional values. And so I think he set a a benchmark, which I think, evangelical SageCon voters are going to hold him accountable to. And he can't go down this path of trying to to champion uh, the redefinition of marriage and the confusion that comes with all this gender ideology. He, he can't expect to have the SageCon support that he has enjoyed in embracing these types of policy, nor can any other uh, Republican or Democratic candidate for that matter. Now, uh, Tony, the, the church and social conservatives have something of a complex relationship with the former president who desires to be the future president. And we talk about the, the celebration of a redefinition of marriage, uh, which we cannot support. He, of course, was uh, probably the most pro-life president we've seen in uh, several generations. He was great on the Supreme Court on religious freedom. He seems to actually intuitively get the gender stuff as well. Like he he 
he corrected the Obama man, a mandate that we pay for transgender surgeries in the military, things of that nature. How would you describe President Trump's worldview? Uh, complex, uh, but I also think it's transactional. I think this, the, this, the evangelical vote, very solid for him. And it's common sense. What, what evangelicals, what sage cons are looking for, nothing that is personally, uh, you know, rewarding to them. They're not looking for government contracts. They're not looking to, to amass power. They're simply looking for what is basically common sense and beneficial to all. And the president is pretty much driven by common sense. I, I do think this is uh, – he cannot go down this path uh, that uh, if the uh, quotes attributed to him from last Thursday's event are accurate, he cannot go down that path and expect evangelical support to be as strong as he's seen it in the path, past. And, and I will say this. I, this is – as again, this is not the first event. There's been other events down there, and other Republican leaders have been involved in the past. Uh, what was encouraging to see this time around – that uh, we did not see the RNC involved. They were involved last time, but got a lot of pushback for their engagement in the log cabin Republicans. And this time they were not there. They realized the importance of the party uh, platform and the importance of that platform to conservative uh, evangelical SageCon voters. Tony, thanks for stopping by your show today. God bless you for the rest of your weekend. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Joseph. Again, appreciate you filling in. Merry-, Merry Christmas, and it's always my pleasure. Coming up next, more on the Twitter files. What does it tell us about the FBI past and present? We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com.
Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in for Tony today. Reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com, where you can watch this and every episode of Washington Watch whenever it is most convenient for you. According to the most recent installments of the Twitter files, the FBI was in constant communication with tech media giant, with the tech media giant prior to Elon Musk's acquisition of the company. We now have confirmation that following the 2016 election, the FBI created a social media task force to monitor the online chatter of everyday Americans. This unit expanded to include up to 80 agents collaborating with Twitter to suppress accounts with views they labeled as, quote, misinformation. The Bureau repeatedly requested moderation even of low follower accounts, parody accounts, and the accounts of average Americans. Joining me now to discuss this is former FBI Special Agent Jonathan Gilliam. He's also a former Navy SEAL and the current president of the Navy SEALs Fund. Jonathan, good to see you today. Good to be with you. Now, it appears the FBI was not just monitoring social media chatter, which I assume they've always done for a variety of law enforcement uh, reasons, but that they were in contact with Twitter and encouraging them to stop certain uh, conversations and communications that weren't criminal in nature, but they just disagreed with it. What's your reaction to all this? Well, I'll tell you what, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, by the way, I'm no longer the president of Navy SEALs uh, Fund. That's been handed off to another incredible American. So uh, so I, want, I don't want to take anything away from Apologies. them. But when we, that's all right. When we talk about, though, uh, what we see here at Twitter is the fact that um, we we are seeing the FBI and the federal government, because you, you have to remember, let's stop, start at the top down, uh, the Democrat Party, and the leftist socialists in this nation are very oppressive. They they want to make people think the way they do, and they want to block people from spreading information that they don't agree with. With that being said, we, we see that there are certain elements of the United States government that are doing that exactly to the letter um, in the way that the Democrat Party and leftists in general on social media have pushed forward. So the same thing they get upset about is the same thing that the uh, tops of the FBI and the DOJ get upset about. That's evidence part number one. Now, when we look at the fact that they went from uh, kind of overwatch and watching uh, social media platforms, primarily for terrorist uh, reasons, watching to see where there was chatter going on, if they could detect any type of operation that was coming they moved from an observation platform to actually telling social media platforms what they would like uh, to be pulled off. And in effect, they were dictating uh, what these uh, social media platforms, and it's not just Twitter, but we have evidence at Twitter, um, that they're telling them, we don't want this on there. And Twitter having the same ideological stance as these uh, these leftists in the government were basically doing the government's bidding to oppress the First Amendment and to censor free speech. And so that's what's occurred. What's John? interesting, though, yeah, go ahead. Oh. Very, very quickly, I want to, is the point at which they crossed the line when they went from just monitoring conversations, which I think they do for a variety of reasons, because there's people, you want to know if their chatter level increases, because that could be an indication of something they need to know about as in, right. in their legitimate law enforcement enterprises. But 
did they cross the line when they went from monitoring to actually influencing and, and dictating what should and shouldn't be allowed, irrespective of criminal implications? Well, we have to realize that there's a reasonable expectation of privacy that people have in certain things such as direct messages where we know that even in direct messages where you're trying to communicate with someone privately, that those have been pulled down and there's actually people that have been, uh, their accounts have been deleted because of direct messages. So we know that it goes far beyond uh, just the Twitter files and what they're saying uh, that has happened on Twitter. So wherever this reasonable expectation of privacy occurs, the government cannot just go in. It's the same as back in the day when we had phone booths. Um, once somebody stepped into that phone booth, the government could not actively listen inside that phone booth unless they had a warrant. So now if somebody was screaming and hollering, a police officer was standing right outside, then they could uh, use that information for uh, for a case. But the same thing occurs here. If there, people are putting this out in the open, and Twitter, by and large, is, is wide open. Some people protect their accounts. Um, but by and large, it's wide open. So they can observe what they want to observe as long as there's no reasonable expectation of privacy and they don't have a warrant. But when they cross over and they start telling them, we want you to look at this and we want this taken down, that's no different than me going to a source and saying, man, it sure would be great if this uh, drug dealer died uh, and was no longer a problem for us. And then the source went and killed them, right? Because I didn't tell them, hey, go kill this guy. But I said, it'd be a great thing if, wink, wink, if they were dead and they went and did it. Now they're acting as a uh, an element of the federal government. And that's what's occurring here. It's a wink and a nod. But every time they ask them to do it, they do it that specific thing. Jonathan, we've only got about 40 seconds left, but now that this is coming to light, do you expect to see changes in the way the FBI operates? No, not at all. It's not going to. This won't matter as long as the, the leftists are in charge and the Republican Party is full of careerists that don't do anything. What I would what I would love to see and we're probably not going to see is the fact that this what we've seen with Twitter is an example of across the board at every social media platform, because pretty much they all originate from Silicon Valley, which is very leftist. So we're probably not going to see that. But that is where the problem is. It's getting worse on Facebook and YouTube right now as this stuff goes on on Twitter. Yeah, we do know that a lot of change is happening in Twitter. But there's the questions, of course, arise. What's going on still in these other places? Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today. I know we'll yeah. talk down the road. You got it. Thank you very much. Coming up, shenanigans in Washington, D.C. around an omnibus bill. What in the world is that and how much harm is it going to do to you and your family? We'll talk about it when we come back. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com.
With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. And those of you who are dreaming of a white Christmas, it looks like, based on the forecast, may be getting your wish in many parts of the country. We'll see in just a few days. Quick reminder that thanks to a special year-end challenge match by Friends of FRC, your gift between now and December 31st will be doubled. To take advantage of this tremendously generous offer, please call 800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com. Again, the number is 800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com. As always, we are so grateful and so dependent on your prayers and your support. What many expect to be the final major policy battle of the 117th Congress is unfolding on Capitol Hill this week. As legislators negotiate the fiscal year 2023 omnibus spending bill, a package which could be as high as $1.7 trillion. The current continuing resolution funding the government expires this week. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said Thursday is the deadline for any future agreement. So what can we expect in these final days of 2022? Joining me now is Connor Semmelsberger, Director of the Federal Affairs for Life and Human Dignity at Family Research Council. Connor, good to see you today. Hey, great to see you, Joseph. Well, the clock is ticking, my friend. Lots of chatter about an omnibus bill. Let's start at the beginning and make sure people can follow our conversation. What in the world is an omnibus bill? Omnibus, omni meaning all-encompassing. So this is a bill that instead of how Congress is meant to work, work throughout the year, pass their spending bills. There's 12 specific bills that they need to pass each year individually. 
those individual bills going to the president's desks. Instead of that happening, they will to the end of the year, right as that Christmas deadline's coming up and all the staff and members want to get home and they package um, the 12 annual spending bills together and some other goodies are usually tacked on there as well into one big bill that's usually thousands of pages. Members have less than a day or two to read it, pass it through and send it to the president's desk. So that's what this omnibus bill is that we're talking about, a massive piece of legislation um, that goes from everything from funding the government to could be reauthorizing uh, new and existing programs. So, Connor, you say that this omnibus is a combination of 12 individual bills, which in a better world would be considered and negotiated and amended uh, them individually. How far back do we have to go in history to a time when Congress was functioning a bit better than it is today, when they would have considered each of these bills on their own, considered them on their own merits uh, so that the public could see what they are and these could be debated by the people they've elected? Yeah, we have to go quite a ways back. But in my five years here doing this, um, the committees will begin in the summer, a little bit late, but they'll do each one of these bills, move them through committee, have amendments, start with a scrap, uh, baseline bill that members can weigh in, both parties. Uh, but usually that process only happens in the House. This Congress was sort of setting a record in that the U.S. Senate has not moved a single individual appropriations bill through the Senate uh, committee. Uh, in the last two years. So this is unprecedented stuff, Joseph, but really goes back to the years of the Obama years where the Republicans had a unified House and Senate would actually work these bills through from each chamber. But uh, recent precedent is just waiting until the last minute and throwing it all together rather than actually letting the public and even the members themselves who are here to represent us in Congress having their fair say and uh, what, what government funds. So we have 12 individual bills, which are no longer 12 individual bills, uh, this omnibus bill, which Mitch McConnell has said there's a deadline for Thursday to get it passed, my understanding is that as of this moment, it hasn't even been released yet. So people haven't seen it. There's speculation that this bill could be 4,000 pages or more, which makes it virtually impossible, it seems, that anyone who's going to vote on it would even have the time to read the thing before these votes. Is that a fair assessment of what we're looking at? Yeah, that's very fair. Here we are, evening hours on Monday, it's still no text. Now, we expect something to come out the next day because they have to hit that time window in order to get it uh, through the process by the end of the week. So we might expect something even in the middle of the night. We might see text dropped uh, when no one's looking. But you're right, 4,000 pages. I mean, I, I, for a living, am supposed to read legislation and help amend it and draft new legislation. And even then, there's so much intricacies, programs referencing other programs and definitions referring to old definitions. So this is not just like uh, a reading a novel or a new, uh, you know, even a textbook. This is some complex legislative type of material that takes really technical staff work to even read through these things. And they do it on such a short turnaround. It's so easy for members and staff to miss what's really in this bill. It's almost impossible to know totally what these members are voting for when they actually get to vote on this. So, Connor, when you understand what's actually happening here, it seems that the very obvious response to this is no. That members of Congress say, this is not what people elected us to do. We shouldn't be voting on legislation we haven't read. We shouldn't spend $1.7 trillion if we have no idea what we're spending it on, which it appears uh, is the reality. So, in a political environment, why... Aren't the members of Congress just saying, no, we can't do this to people? Yeah, you would think exactly that, right? The American people and even our legislature would benefit better if we actually went through a regular process. No votes on this, and let's just reset the stage and get back to a normal process. Everybody votes no. We'll pick up uh, the pieces next Congress. You would think that's where they head. But to just give some insights, um, 
once this precedent started to get established, the members that worked through the process this way sort of started to see some advantages. We don't actually have to deal with all the public pressure and, you know, the outside groups always constantly weighing in on this. We can just kind of write our own bills with no one really seeing anything that's going on. Uh, we know what's in there. We know what kind of earmarks or pork barrel projects we can now add in there. So there's actually incentive to really wait till the end of time, uh, not not uh, give the public perception of what's going on here. So actually these little goodies, whether it's a little bill that you never had a chance to pass regularly, you can sort of tack on there, or there's some funding you really were waiting for in your project for years and years, and you didn't have to weigh in with other outside groups or other members to get it in. You could just work through this sort of shadowy process. So. On the whole, it's a bad process, but some members have found uh, some advantages to pushing it off this long. And really what it does is usually line those up, big money interests rather than the average American. It seems like that's a bipartisan sentiment because certainly in the Senate, uh, the Democrats could stop this, or the Republicans rather, who are the minority, they could stop this if they wanted to because this is going to re require 60 votes just to get to the floor for a vote. So if Republic Republicans were really bothered by this process, they could stop this from happening. Is that not correct? But Mitch McConnell just seems to want this to happen? Yeah, that, that is right. Uh, there's only needs to have 41 Republican no votes for this thing to be stopped. And clearly, at least at this point, there aren't those 41 no votes. Uh, but to, to just give some insights, too, and where we've evolved, like you said, going back to past precedent, uh, there was a year where we uh, banned earmarks or these pork barrel projects that we talked about. Republicans were adamant about that during the Obama years. But here we are again, Republicans voting on their new rules package for next year. And guess what? They want earmarks back again. They started to do it this year uh, with some Democrat support. And so it's hard for the Senate to be saying no when even Republicans say, hey, we like these earmarks. They help our own districts. They help me get my pet projects. And so when they have an incentive there, uh, it looks like they're all on board now. Well, Connor, you talk about these earmarks and you also hinted at the fact that this could the language here in this omnibus bill could be released in the middle of the night, two or three in the morning, which, frankly, seems like it would be appropriate given what's about to happen. But do you have any insight into what you expect the details of this bill to be? Yeah, so we do. We have some tells on just some news reports coming out. So it's hard to know what's going to be in those 12 bills that are the 12 appropriations bills. But we're, but what we're intently looking at is are those appropriations writers, those Hyde amendments, things that protect our taxpayer funds from funding abortion, are those still intact? The signal is that they will be, but we're never sure. So we always want to check. But if a deal's even gotten this far, usually that means Republicans have settled a deal that those are going to be included. So that's what we're looking for. But what we've really been trying to stop our efforts here at FRC and our allies in DC is to stop some extraneous bills that we've been fighting, frankly, for the last two years from being tacked on. One being the safe banking bill that's really supposed to open the floodgates for the marijuana industry to continue to promote a, an illicit drug. Thankfully, we're hearing that that's not in this package. Thankfully, we've been fighting against that for a while. And uh, even just uh, within the last hour, we're hoping that this pregnant workers fairness bill that, again, has a really good intent to help pregnant uh, women in the workplace uh, have clear accommodations, but really is riddled with abortion mandates that this Biden administration would love to use against religious employers like FRC. And so we think that's actually been stopped from being added to the package as well. So we're keeping our eyes out, but it looks like um, a lot of the extraneous bills may have been left off, but that usually leaves a couple surprises left in the spending part of the bill. Well, Connor, I want to get into one other specific policy debate within the larger omnibus uh, bill debate, and that is the child tax credit, uh, because the, the child tax credit, there was some concern that it would not be included in this. 
recently, uh, Tony, who was on the show and, of course, is the host of the program, he signed on a letter that is now public uh, encouraging uh, Congress to uh, keep and, and, and put the child tax credit into this uh, omnibus bill. Why is that a good thing that we should be supporting? Yeah, just real quick here. Uh, FRC has long, had a long history with the child tax credit, helping to get it passed back in the mid-90s uh, with uh, actually bipartisan support. Pres- President Bill Clinton signed it into law with a Republican House and, and Newt Gingrich there. And really, it's just simple. It says, hey, American families are working hard. They're raising the next generation uh, up to be productive citizens of society, you know, churchgoers, all, all, all those things you want. Family is essential for it. So the government says it's actually a small government proposal. It says we, the government, are just going to take less from you in taxes because you're doing a social good by building up a family and creating strong families for our society. So that's been in place since the mid-90s. And um, why this was a sticking point, this uh, – go around with negotiations is there was a one-year expansion of this credit under the Biden administration last year. So we're talking the 2021 tax year. It was a massive increase from the current level of two grand up to 3,600. So pretty almost doubling, but it had some bad policies in it that sort of made the child tax credit farther away from what it's supposed to do. It took away some work requirements that have been in there for years, and it even allowed uh, non-citizens to apply for it. So uh, that expired. But why there's a big negotiation right now is instead of going back to the default, which is the 2000 threshold, um, Republicans and Democrats were trying to work together to see if we can increase it, but keep that means testing, those work requirements that, again, both parties had always supported for years and years. So that's the negotiations that's playing out. But just good to know for taxpayers back home that have families that rely on this year to year, it's not going away. Um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that the, the Republicans passed in 2017 uh, locked it in for, I think, a 10-year span at that $2,000 level. So that's what's in place, but they were hoping to get a better package together, which could actually increase it, which is what Tony and others advocated for, bringing that up to a $3,000 threshold to really help families at a time when inflation is just kicking families' pocketbooks right in the pants, uh, and it doesn't look like it's easing up anytime soon. So they thought now it, the 3000 is a good threshold to move it to, if not even more, but at least a minimum of increasing it up uh, an additional $1,000. Now, Connor, you mentioned there the bipartisan support for the child tax credit. That support, however, is not universal. Incoming Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries, and he's replacing Nancy Pelosi. He will not be the Speaker of the House because the Democrats will be the minority in the next Congress, but he will be the Democrat leader replacing Nancy Pelosi. Here's something that he had to say recently about the child tax credit. Let's play clip five. The extreme MAGA Republicans on the other side of the aisle would rather use the tax code to benefit the wealthy, the well-off, and the well-connected. That's what they did when they passed the GOP tax scam, where 83% of the benefits went to the wealthiest 1%. But in connection with our effort as Democrats to stand up for low-income families, working families, and middle-class families, the extreme MAGA Republicans have a problem with the child tax credit. Now, setting aside all the times he says extreme MAGA Republicans, uh, because he's clearly been trained on that front, what's your reaction to kind of the way he's describing the tax policies between the Republicans and the Democrats? Yeah, it it really is the opposite of what he plays out there. Uh, The 2017 bill was, yes, it had incentives for businesses. It did have tax cuts for larger corporations. That is true. But two major policy planks that really helped working families, and not a single Democrat voted for it when that bill passed. The first was what I just talked about. It expanded the child tax credit to $2,000, made it a much uh, larger portion refundable, and and kicked it out for an extra 10 years. So it was a good family-friendly policy, and that's what we're working under now. This came from the 2017. 
2017 tax bill. And secondarily, it simplified the tax brackets for individual and single families. Um, it simplified them. It lowered a lot of the lower brackets. I, as a, a young married man, came into the tax uh, as a taxpayer right at this time, too. So I saw those direct benefits of uh, the tax code really helping working families at the lower tax brackets save money in their taxes every year. It made it a lot simpler. So that is really them working for the hardworking families. And now it's the Democrats trying to sort of flip this thing around. Instead of actually making for hardworking families, they just want to send it to families, not if you're working. And, and I have to tell you, Joseph, the work requirements in the child tax credit are so minimal. I think it's something as simple as it requires you to make at least $12,000 a year, which is, frankly, just a minimum wage job with less than part-time each week. So it's, it's really just to show that work has value and dignity, as we know, as the biblical worldview tells us, and that's reflected in the child tax credit. Well, Connor, I have four little tax credits myself, and so I hope that uh, your tribe may increase uh, for, but the least important reason you should do that is because of the opportunity to take advantage of the tax credits that they come with. But Connor, one last question for you. What's the difference between a uh, pro-family child tax credit and, and basically a, uh, a handout from the government to pay people to have children? Yeah, I have to tell you this one, Joseph. I, my main area here is, is the life issue. And what we've seen post-Roe is that family is so instrumental to stopping abortion in our country. And part of that is reducing single motherhood and really helping single mothers out instead of just having uh, the father replaced by government benefits, uh, help her get married and, and, and find someone to care for her and her children. So this is something that pro-family policy really does. We did this in welfare reform in the mid-90s. And again, we have a work requirement in our child tax credit still today. So pro-family welfare policy is all about building people up and establishing them to, to, yes, they may need benefits and a little assistance here and there. With the state of the economy right now, almost everyone needs a little bit of help here at the edges. But it's really about not replacing family, but helping support families to grow and thrive and in, in an era where families are really struggling right now. And we need to incentivize the, the things that are most important. Having, getting married, having babies, that's what you need for a community, for a family, for a society, for a culture, for a strong nation. There's nothing more important than that. We should be incentivizing that. Connor Semmelsberger, thanks for your time today. Yeah, happy to be back, Joseph. Friends, that's what we have for today. We are so glad that you are with us. We look forward to seeing you tomorrow here on Washington Watch as we continue to get ready for Christmas. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 